the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today we have the pleasure of being joined by stuart sandine welcome stuart hi thanks for having me it's a pleasure for audience that don't know stuart i came across stuart due to his prolific blog about testing topics little did i know but stuart has awesome background coming to computer science from a less conventional background so for audience that are curious Stuart, how did you get into programming? Yeah, so in 2010, I was living in Seattle. I had recently graduated from college, and in college, I studied psychology and music. It was the depths of the economic recession, and in Seattle, I had a pretty hard time finding a job. I thought that I was just going to show up to Seattle, and you know, I was like an entitled 22-year-old or whatever, and I, I thought that Seattle was going to just open its gates and be like, you know, here's, here's like, here's all these rad jobs or whatever. And I got there and I found that to not really be the case. And I ended up working as a, uh, I had, I had worked in delivery before I'd been a delivery driver. So I ended up getting a job doing, uh, delivery. I, I was a delivery driver for vegan donuts. I worked in the middle of the night. So I would drive all over Seattle. Uh, I had a key ring with like a hundred coffee shops keys on it. And I would sneak into places and drop off donuts in the middle of the night. And anyway, uh, I really didn't like this job. I, I literally got robbed in the middle of the night doing this job. And Seattle's a very expensive city. And I don't know. So I was really kind of just rethinking um, what I wanted to be doing. And meanwhile, I had uh, I had some friends in Seattle who were studying computer science and going to the University of Washington. And they were graduating and getting, getting pretty sweet jobs that, um, you know, seemed engaging and seemed like seemed like they were making pretty good money and stuff like this. And so kind of seeing their example, like, like I had actually considered going to school for computer science, but, um, but decided against it. And, and I didn't, before that, I didn't ever really see it as, as possible for me to just like get into this field, but having friends who are doing it and seeing them doing it uh, as well as like, I did some research. So I looked at the, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and if I remember correctly, they came out with a report in like 2008 that projected the next 10 years or something of um, different professions. And for software engineering, it was like, you know, this is going to be like unprecedented demand and not nearly enough people to fill it. And so these things started to kind of come together in my head. And, and like I said, I got robbed in the middle of the night delivering donuts. <laughs> and and then that really made me, uh, I would say that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I was like, why don't I do this? You know, like, why don't I try um, becoming a programmer, engineer, whatever. Um, and so, so meanwhile, my sister, uh, was operating a small marketing agency that was like pretty design focused. And so she and I got together and kind of schemed and said, why don't we offer websites and apps to your clients and I'll figure out how to build them. And, so that's what we did. So basically, you know, for the first year, year and a half, my sister would sell projects to people. She's like a great salesperson. And this is something I would have been horrified to do, like selling something that I don't, you know, fully know what it is that I'm building or how to do it. But she was able to sell these things and we'd build in enough timeline that I could either learn how to build it or contract it out <laughs> if it was something that was too complicated. And I could, you know, contract it out and then um, use that to understand what it was. So so that's that's basically what I did. So the first like year and a half, I was essentially kind of giving given increasingly difficult projects, and I was paid to figure out how to do things. And I, I learned a lot during that time. 
this is a super common refrain on the show is about getting paid to learn stuff and how sweet a deal that is. <laughs> I mean, never mind how distressing it is, but if you're paid enough, the distress kind of goes away <laughs> and it's kind of this awesome, wow, I'm getting paid to learn Python or I'm getting paid to learn WordPress or whatever. Right. And it, this bizarre deal like when when i'm guessing you were delivering i i was curious to ask more about the robbery part <laughs> i wasn't sure whether i should i was also curious to ask you more about the how why why not computer science i i that's the topic that i i'm curious about is you mentioned that you thought about doing computer science in undergrad why not what happened for sure so First, regarding the robbery, it was honestly actually pretty uneventful. I was just delivering donuts in the middle of the night and somebody essentially got in the van with me, uh, you know, at four in the morning. <laughs> they stole one donut and they stole my iPod, my 320 gigabyte iPod or or whatever. And it was honestly pretty chill as far as like robbery. <laughs> like, I'm taking this and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it still sucked. Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. And so as to why I didn't study CS, um, so honestly, I I ended up, I first majored in music and then I ended up switching to psychology and minoring in music. And I considered CS, but I honestly just didn't have a very, um, I didn't have a very clear picture of what it really meant or anything like that. And I sort of had this idea of like, well, I don't, I don't want to be like staring at a computer all day. And I felt more passionate about music at that time, which is something else I would, I would definitely like to talk with, uh, talk about on this podcast, just this idea of passion, because I've now developed much different ideas about that. <laughs> um, sure. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of what led me not to study it. But I was always kind of interested in it. And, um, you know, kind of naively, I was like, well, I like using computers or whatever. So I would probably be a natural fit. And it's like, I mean, maybe that makes sense. Maybe not. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. I I took a couple of computer science undergrad classes, but by the time that I took them, I was already too far down the path of my major that I ended up doing, which was math. And the math I took was not particularly applied, wasn't didn't have any real crossover to computer science beyond what maybe people in the job market guess that it does. So <laughs> right. it, it might have helped me when I was coming to computer coming to software engineering as a career a few years after college that uh, people just assumed, oh, math, you know, whatever. <laughs> that's like computers, whatever. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Not particularly. Like this type of stuff you were doing with your sister was way more applied and like way more qualified you for probably software engineering roles after doing that than <laughs> maybe my undergraduate in math. <laughs> for sure. Well, I want to hear about the the, the passion versus uh, practical, uh, how you choose your studies. I, it sounds like you've got some strong opinions there. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the way that I've come to see it is that um, there are a lot of people in our field who talk about passion and talk about this as something that, um, that like, this is one of the core characteristics that they want to see in uh, people breaking into the field or um, candidates interviewing for a position or whatever. And I just think that it's, I, I for for lack of a better word, I think that it's just a whole bunch of bullshit. Like I, how do you even define <laughs> that? Right? Like, like what is passion? Um, the, what is it in the first place? And how do you, how do you measure it and evaluate it? And 
I, I honestly think that the way that the way that that kind of thinking functions is to um, is to put some kind of a stigma on people who want to get into this career because it's a stable job, you know. And and I guess I, I think that that's like a totally valid reason to want to do this. And you don't I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense when you compare it to other professions like people don't people don't ask uh, plumbers or bus drivers or doctors or lawyers or whatever, like what their side projects are or like, you know, things like this. And so I don't, I don't really understand where this came from, but I just, I think that, uh, I think that it's not necessary. And I think that it's perfectly fine if you just want to um, go into this field because you think it's for, for pretty much whatever reason you have, unless it's something really, you know, maybe really far out. But. I think I think there's probably a similar song and dance that's required if you apply to medical schools. Like it's a big no-no to say you want to go to medical school for the money or for the secure job. Like right. I think you'll I think you'll get rejected outright through their super aggressive in-person interview yeah. schedule where they use all kinds of non-quantifiable ways to evaluate candidates. <laughs> right. But, but also as a, as a medical student, you're not expected to have side projects. So <laughs> pretty, that would be pretty horrifying if <laughs> students had side projects. Yeah. But yeah. Hey, absolutely. Maybe they do. And maybe I'm, I'm totally wrong about that. And maybe someone in our audience will severely correct me and say, you know, they traveled internationally and helped tons of people save lives and stuff. But right. software-wise, I, 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 there's there's also one thing that really attracts me about certain areas of software engineering. Maybe you feel the same. I'm curious your take on this. Is there's areas of software engineering where lives are saved, and you're working on way more risky stuff like. Um, like aeronautics, aeronautics being one of the first places where software was used. I don't think either Stuart or I have worked in uh, aeronautics, but I know Stuart is well familiar with testing and software testing. And that's actually how I first came across Stuart is he has this amazing blog post about his extremely difficult, uh, I, I, it, it read as being difficult and I don't think I would have had the will to muscle through it, but Stuart implemented a way to run tests on Amazon Lambdas. And the the genius of doing that is he can run all of his tests simultaneously. So most people, when running software tests, they, they might run them one at a time or four at a time or 10 at a time. But if you have a thousand tests, imagine that you could run all a thousand at once without needing uh, to provision a thousand computers. So this is a topic that I find super interesting. Less sure about whether my audience will or our audience will. So Stuart, can you, can you give a, a sense for why, why you started looking into this and, and, and why, uh, why testing became a topic of interest to you? Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I've always been really interested in software testing. Um, to me, it's, it serves a lot of different functions. Um, you know, making you, helping you understand your code, helping you design your code differently in in the first place and arguably better, um, helping you validate that it does the correct thing. And, and ultimately, it, these things boil down to me, like to the, the main value is like giving you confidence that you can make changes without introducing regressions, right? Um, and 
Um, one book that I really love is uh, Working with Legacy Code by Michael Feathers, where where he talks about this process of like when he goes into a super gnarly legacy code base. His, I actually love his definition of legacy code is code without tests, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he talks about how the first step is basically putting tests around things before so that you can refactor it uh, into better shape, but also just like establishing this system of being able to provide um, quick feedback. And and I don't know, I've, I've just always really loved it and, and loved working on stuff related to testing. And so um, and so Cypress, the, the post that you're talking about um, involves Cypress, which is a really neat like uh, a really neat next generation end to end testing framework. And what I find to be super interesting about it is just the ways that it's different, the ways in which it's different from Selenium, basically, right? Like um, end-to-end testing is an area that I think a lot of people have tried and been been burned by Selenium. Just like, you know, you end up with with super slow tests and systems that you can't easily understand what's happening. And, and so you just throw it away and you just bang your head against the table and it's like, whatever, I'm just not going to have end-to-end tests. Um, Cypress and and there are some other new tools as well, like Puppeteer. But there, there's a new generation of end-to-end testing tools that I see as um, categorically different and and arguably and to me better, you know. And so like Cypress, Cypress runs in the same in the same run loop as your application, and so it's fundamentally different than Selenium. And it it's it's fast and it's got really nice APIs and um, I've really been wanting to use it. And so anyway, to take a step back real quick for our audience that might not be familiar with Selenium or Cypress, these are tools that allow you to write automated ways of clicking buttons and interacting with the browser. So if you're making a website as a software, you might want to verify that you can register a new account or that you might be able to log into an existing account. So these are important ways to automate what is otherwise something you'd have to manually test. Like, can I, you know, sign up as a new user after I've made a change to my website? So these are super popular tools in testing. Um, There's a lot of new ones coming out, Cypress being one of them, but continue. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, thank you. That's great. Thank you for providing that context. And, and like, and one of the common problems with these kind of tests is that um, as you can imagine, they're pretty slow, right? Like testing all of these, testing all of these browser-based flows, it can take a lot of time. So if you have 50, 100, 500 of these tests, um, what you end up with is developers sitting around waiting a really long time for them to finish. Um, and so, so then you start looking at like, okay, well, how can we do multiple test runs concurrently, right? And there's a number of different strategies for doing this. Uh, I think what people have been doing for a long time is splitting the tests over a fixed number of workers to achieve some higher level of concurrency. But like in, in the last probably six months or year, I've become really interested in functions as a service like AWS Lambda and, and things like this, as you mentioned. Um, and to me, uh, serverless computing environments like this provide a really nice fit for a workload like end-to-end tests where, because, because you, you have rapid scalability to pretty much infinite levels as far as, you know, uh, as far as what we're doing here. Uh, and if you pay for the actual usage, so like when you're sitting around not running tests most of the time, you're getting charged $0. So 
so I was thinking about this and I was like, okay, so I have this uh, project that's that's using Cypress to to do some end-to-end -end tests. And what if I could parallelize it such that, yeah, as you said, like if I have a hundred tests, I want them all to run at the same time, right? And so Lambda seems like a great, or functions as a service more generally, seem like a great way to do this. Um, but the problem there is that Cypress at this time doesn't run, isn't able to interact with a headless browser. So like, so now we're trying to put a, a headed browser into this super restricted environment of functions as a service. And that was that was what the post was all about that you mentioned. And yes, it, it was very difficult. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, and I think our audience might be too, about what are, I think I, not many people have made the jump yet to serverless. And mm -hmm. Jumping in and trying to get a browser-driven testing tool working inside of a Lambda is really jumping in the deep end. So for <laughs> people who might want to be dibbling their toes in to the, the more shallow end of serverless, what were some of the harder things that you encountered to kind of sum up what you wrote about in your blog post? And of course, we'll include a show note and the links to the full thing, but what's kind of the 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 bullet points of tough things you encountered yeah totally so i mean so fundamentally um fundamentally it's changing the way that we think about uh, code that we're deploying to a cloud provider right because the with functions as a service the the deployable unit is it becomes uh, a function Right, rather than an application with a server that's listening on some port or whatever, um, and so we have this we have this environment where we're deploying simply a function. We hand them their code, and them being the cloud provider, and and they'll execute it. Um, there's a number of hard limits uh, that we can't really work around in this environment. So, for example, there's super limited disk space. There's it's like about 500 megabytes of uh, ephemeral disk space. Um, there are hard limits on the package size, like how, how big your code can be that you're going to ship over there. And I believe the limit there is, um, uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember off the top. I think of my head. it's I a few hundred megabytes, but you use it for, yeah. yeah. Exactly, right, right. I believe, right, if you zip it up and send it to S3, I believe unpacked uh, 500 megabytes, I think is also the limit there. So, so, and you're running on Amazon Linux, right? And and you can't control that. And um, so essentially, and a lot of things that that you may be used to doing in one way, logging, monitoring, um, things like this, they're all going to change. And so it's just it's a totally different way of thinking. And I think that that's I think that that's one of the biggest hurdles at first. I also think that serverless is a super overloaded word. And I think people mean slightly different things when they talk about it. There's a framework called serverless. Um, there's a bunch of slightly different definitions. And I think there's a ton of hype around this concept with some people ready to migrate everything to um, functions as a service and similar. And, and I think there's also a lot of fear around it. Um, uh, folks who are don't want to adopt it for one reason or another. And so um, I think just getting an understanding of like like what it is and the ways in which serverless computing is different than server full computing uh, is really one of the biggest hurdles and a really great resource for for 
helping to break that down, I think, is um, there's a paper that came out earlier this year. Uh, it's called something like the Berkeley View on Serverless Computing. And this is like, I mean, this is like a very, um, very, they, this contains very dense kind of concise um, definitions. And, and I find it to be very helpful to kind of like cut through the hype. And otherwise for folks wanting to start learning about this, like I would definitely recommend checking out serverless framework or, or something like this, which makes it pretty easy to deploy something and, um, you know, lets you lets you get away from a lot of the provider specific details and things like that, and and just start playing around with it quickly. So you mentioned some of the really hard constraints that have to be worked around to package up uh, software to be ran as a Lambda or a Google Cloud function, or use serverless to deploy to either. Um, one of the other naysayer things that people criticize uh, serverless hosting for is the cost. So one thing we should point out about, let's say you have your all of your Cypress tests and you want to follow Stuart's blog post about how to run them all in parallel, is that this introduces a fixed cost per test run. So if you have a thousand tests and it invokes it a thousand times, you're going to be paying for the compute of those thousand invocations. But in contrast, you don't have to pay for having provisioned uh, compute power if you're running them not in this fashion, in a traditional fashion, like using Jenkins or using Circle CI or Travis CI. So uh, that's, a, that's a really important thing to distinguish for people who uh, might be penny pinching or, or concerned about their per build costs is you, you, can, you can take another look at maybe pricing around uh, what, how, how long do you, do your tests take to run? Uh, and maybe how many tests you have and, and you can do the arithmetic on what your cost per build might be. Uh, but you really, you really can't know until you try it. <laughs> For sure. No, that, that's a super interesting point because right. You, you hear, I mean, there is this misconception that some folks have, which is that like serverless is just cheaper period. Um, and the the fact is that you might end up saving money and you might not like it totally depends and there are some really cool tools out there such as uh there's a website you can visit called servers.lol which which the idea here is like comparing the cost of a certain workload on ec2 versus lambda um because it just it just really depends on on what the workload is right but and there's another cost dimension to this which is like like the scenario you mentioned, uh, depending on how long your tests run, how many tests you have, et cetera, it might come out such that the calculation is uh, the, the calculation might show that it's going to cost you more doing this with a serverless architecture. But then you also have to factor in the cost of like, okay, if you're doing this on EC2, what are the costs of um, what are kind of like the sysadmin type costs of dealing with that? You know, totally. And <laughs> so it's it's. <laughs> It's unfortunately complicated, and it depends. One, one, the the only other constraint I think we haven't mentioned yet is the cold start problem. For people who aren't familiar with the cold start problem, what is it? Did you encounter it when you were trying to run Cypress on Lambda? Yeah, for sure. So the cold start problem is that you ship your uh, function to a one of these cloud providers, and the way that they execute it is in a container and so like if each time each time the container starts up there's a cold start penalty right it takes a little bit of time to start it up 
And then it stays warm for a certain period after that. So for example, let's pretend that our that we have no concurrency. We have one Lambda function and um, we make a request to it. That first request, uh, there might be an additional like one second penalty or something like that. But then for the next five minutes, that one second penalty will be gone. Um, but the real problem is that if we have a thousand concurrent invocations of that same Lambda function for, for the first invocation across all 1000, each one will experience the cold start. So like, um, so depending on what your workload is like, if, if you have a, um, if you have a service that's customer facing and, you know, requires low latencies or requires low latencies for whatever reason, cold starts can be like a huge problem. And if you have with AWS specifically, if you put a Lambda function in a VPC, if it needs to access resources in a VPC, the cold starts can be up to 10 seconds. Um, and so this can be a huge problem. Um, but with the with the end-to-end -end testing scenario, these are workloads that aren't really sensitive to to latencies of that level, right? Like, Ten like if we're taking a sweep <laughs> in testing. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Like I mean, we're solving a problem of, you know, something that maybe takes two hours to run and making it run in 30 seconds or whatever. So if it's 40 seconds instead, like you know, who cares? True, <laughs> um, true. But so that's like, that's definitely a problem. And uh, there are some interesting things to note about that. Like some, some providers offering functions as a service, such as Cloudflare, which offers uh, workers, like those are implemented as V8 isolates. And so those actually don't really incur cold starts or, or cold starts that are so small that it's um, almost negligible compared to the other ones. And you know, we know that with other cloud providers, they're working on improving cold start latencies. And theoretically, at some point in the future, that won't be a thing. But but right now, that's totally a huge blocker to some kinds of workloads being able to be migrated there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is there some way that you simulated um, the, maybe not the cold start problem, but the constraints? Like, I think I recall you mentioning using the Docker Lambda uh, Docker image to emulate what your deployed Lambda might look like? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, um, so right, there's this really neat project called LAMCI, which is all about running your CI on Lambda. And they publish this, this project called uh, Docker Lambda, which is essentially like, it's Amazon Linux Docker images that reproduce as faithfully as possible the Lambda execution environment. So this is really nice because when you're working with this, you speed up your, um, you, you, you make a much tighter feedback loop, right? So like you're iterating locally and you're not having to actually deploy zip files constantly to, to the cloud to be able to test and see what's happening. And with a project like the one I did, like it required a ton of iteration, um, tweaking things and stuff. So this saved me an enormous amount of time and it's, it's a really rad project. Are you still using it? Are you, do you have a personal website that you use it on? Do you have clients' websites that you use it on? Uh, uh, the Docker Lambda or the the Cypress on Lambda uh, tests runner. Oh yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I'm basically using that for uh, I'm using that for a personal project of mine. Got yeah. it, got it. We we should also plug that Stuart is an independent consultant and uh, consults on this stuff. So definitely should plug that. Uh, we should also definitely pl plug Stuart's blog. Uh, it's stuartsandine.com. Uh, that's S-A-N-D-I-N-E. Uh, 
otherwise, uh, off the top of my head, is there anything that, that you'd like to share with our audience beyond what I just mentioned? Uh, no, that's that's pretty much all I've got. Thanks, Max. Okay, appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'll include all kinds of links in the show notes. One thing, lastly, I'll mention is if people are curious, we had the creator of Selenium on the show recently, Paul Hammond. Uh, we didn't talk about uh, browser-based testing, but uh, it's a similar episode that if people are curious, they should go check out. But otherwise, thank you for coming on, Stuart. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.